Hey, Scott here. Thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm really excited about this week's episode. We have a great guest, one of my favorite political journalists, somebody I think really gets it. A man named David Drucker is here. Uh, you read him in the Washington Examiner and Vanity Fair and other outlets. Longtime Capitol Hill reporter, really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in American politics. He has written a new book called In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David Drucker joins us this week to talk about the possible candidates who could seek the Republican nomination for president. We'll get David's thoughts on whether we're going to have a crowded primary on the Republican side. Of course, Donald Trump is the front runner and he is the uh, 500-pound gorilla in the room. But David Drucker thinks potentially you'll have a lot of candidates challenging Trump and not necessarily ready to stand aside for the former president. We'll talk about all that, plus why David Drucker says he's drinking more bourbon than water these days and what is his favorite bourbon since we're coming to you live from Kentucky. All that and a whole lot more with David Drucker from the Washington Examiner this week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. You're on the Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us today, and it's my honor and pleasure to welcome to the podcast this week David Drucker, who's one of the best journalists in Washington, D.C. You can find him on Twitter at David M. Drucker. He is a senior correspondent for the Washington Examiner. He is a contributor to Vanity Fair and The Hive. Uh, he's previously written for Roll Call and the L.A. Daily News. He is on the show this week, though, mostly to talk about his new book called In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David, welcome to the Flyover Country podcast. Hey, Scott, it's good to be back in Kentucky. <laughs> thanks. Yes, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, appearing with us here and uh, uh, talking to folks out here in middle America. I have uh, I followed you for a long time. In fact, your first uh uh, one of your first D.C. reporting jobs was about the time I got to D.C., and so I feel like you and I have tracked uh, together for uh, quite some time and 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 really have both experienced in different ways the changing of the Republican Party. I came in uh, to work for President George W. Bush. You started covering politics there in his second term, and now we've really uh, come a very long way, and culminating, at, at least at this moment, in this book you've written, uh, fascinating, called In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP. The the first thing I want to ask you about this book, David, is that if you look at the pantheon of books that have been written about Donald Trump uh, over the last several years, they're almost all negative. You know, it's almost all something to attack Donald Trump. And you went to a publisher and said, I've got an idea to write a book analyzing the Republican Party in the era of Donald Trump and thinking about what will happen next. Can you talk to us about what it was like to sell a book like that when virtually everything else we see on on Donald Trump is just sort of hateful content? Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. You know, the impetus for the book originally started from reporting I had done throughout 2018 and 2019 about really what I thought was a, a developing shadow campaign for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And, you know, I thought this was interesting. And, and Scott, maybe, you know, as a former White House uh, political guy, you might think it interesting as well. Normally, my experience with ambitious politicians of either party, not that they do nothing, but usually they keep things at a very low level until 
the president of their party, if that if the president is of their party, has run for reelection and then they win, they lose. And but either way, the next day, everybody's free to start preparing for their own future in the White House. What I saw very early in Trump's term was a lot of activity that really had 2024 in mind. And because of that, you kind of had this real quiet but obvious competition between various Republicans who presumed, like we all did, that, well, either Donald Trump will run for reelection and win and be termed out in 2024, or he'll run for reelection and lose. And when you've lost, when you've been ousted from the White House, your party doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. And you just go away because that's uh, the almost the entire era of actually presidential politics. Only right. one president has mounted a third bid for a second term and been successful. And that's Grover Cleveland back in the 1800s. So all of these Republicans were busy doing that. And I thought that that would be a really interesting story to tell because it was about people and competition. And then as I was talking to my agents, uh, Matt Latimer and Keith Urban, uh, really smart guys, who had been encouraging me, encouraging me to write a book for a long time and then proceeded to knock down every pitch I brought to them and told me nobody would want to buy it or, well, they might want to buy it, but only if you do it this way. And I'd be like, yeah, but I don't want to do it that way. And they'd be like, yeah, I know. That's why I forget it. So I actually, I emailed this, uh, this idea to them and 10 days later, I've heard nothing. And I'm like, you know, okay, that, there goes number eight. And I have no doubt that the, this one sucks too. And I said, well, I should probably email them again, just in case. And it was right before the holidays in 2019. And, and they got back to me after the second email and said, no, this one we like. <laughs> and as I started talking through the idea with them in greater depth, uh, they helped shape it as telling the story of Donald Trump's impact on the party and how that might influence what 2024 looked like. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. And then I took the ball from them and really started to think about that. And when I started the reporting for the book, and I guess I should say to your question, we took it to some publishers and there was interest. And we landed with 12 books, which is which is a Hachette property, um, because they were, in fact, very interested about telling a future-oriented story about what the Trump presidency meant to American politics. And of course, my focus is on its impact on the Republican Party, but in our system, it's one or the other. And so really, so goes one, so goes American politics in some way, shape, or form. Uh, they were really excited about it, and, and we signed. And as I started asking these questions about Trump's impact on the party, I started getting answers that I didn't know I wouldn't get, but I didn't know I would get. So it, it really became this theme that tied all of the different stories and reporting about different potential candidates together. Um, and in fact, you know, I ended up, and we'll talk about more about it, but I ended up really coming to the conclusion that Trump just didn't do things differently. That even though not everybody in the party does act like him or will say things like him and act like him, he really does represent a generational break with the Reagan era of Republican politics. And I think that that's what 2024 is going to reflect, whether or not he's a candidate. Well, and, and let's talk about that last point you made uh, about Trump's style of, of Republicanism. It's not really policy based. And, and I think this is the, the sort of I think the people who comment on our politics today are still stuck in the old paradigm of describing things as conservative or liberal. And I and I, I just don't think Trump adheres 
to those labels. Uh, his his uh, politics is more performative. It's more emotive. It's more uh, cultural. It's more in the moment. You know, and it's not it's not grounded because he read, you know, 18, uh, you know, magazine articles about some policy topic. And that's how he formed an opinion. It, it's really sort of a, a, an emotional, visceral kind of politics. Now, on some days that may lead him to say something that we would consider to be traditionally a conservative position. But on other days, say at the end of his term in December, it may lead him to align himself with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi on the size of the stimulus checks. And so I'm, I'm wondering in the interviews you've had with the potential other 2024 Republican candidates, do you think that they get that, that that's where more people are today? Uh, and do you think they have the innate talent to pull it off? Because it's it's not easy to do. And if you try to fake it, I think it people smell it from a mile away. Yeah, it's <clears throat> a really interesting thing. I do think they get it, actually. And it, let me even go deeper in exploring your question, you know, what I tried to do in In Trump Shadow is bring everything back to the Republican voter, right? Because so much of um, Trump's strength in the Republican Party is based on his relationship with voters. So much of what often looks like fear of Trump among Republicans in Washington isn't actually fear of Trump. It's fear of their own voters who they fear like Trump more than them. And therefore, they do not want to get into a tiff with Trump for that reason. I get asked all the time, why won't they just stand up to him? And what I really try and explain is it's not him they don't, don't want to stand up to. It's their own voters that they don't want to give the bird to. Hmm. Um, but, but really interesting here, often from voters, what I will hear is, well, you people in Washington don't, don't get it. Or you know, especially if I'm talking to some uh, committed Republican voters, you know, the Republican establishment, this, that, and the other, and they don't get it. But what I found over the past four or five years is they actually do get it. And I don't say this to defend them. What I say, I say this because as I started asking questions about what it would take to be successful in 2024, and I started asking these questions before November uh, 3rd or 2nd of 2020, whatever date that was last year, <laughs> it's hard to keep track. Uh, before Trump had lost re-election, I was asking this question. And I said, you know, do you need to be right on guns? Do you need to be right on abortion? Do you need to be right on taxes or whatever the case may be? China, well, you have to be right on all those issues because, you, you know, you just can't. There are certain issues you can't be heterodox on in a Republican primary. But what Republican strategists inside the establishment, outside the establishment, and everywhere in between told me is you need to channel Trump's attitude. Yeah. That what Republican voters want more than anything is somebody who they think is really fighting for them and fighting for them hard against Democrats, against reporters, against a man on the street they've never heard of, against moderate Republicans, against ex-presidents. I mean, the list goes on. And so Republicans inside the party that do this for a living understand where their voters are. They don't always like it, but they get it. And that has been one of the biggest uh, impacts that Trump has had on the party is attitudinally this idea that, <clears throat> excuse me, Republican voters really want a fighter. And to your point, Scott, as a, a close ally of President Trump told me when I was talking to him for In Trump Shadow, you better do it in a way that's authentic. Yeah. Because if you just try and imitate Trump, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a, a great impressionist by the name of Rich Little, who, <laughs> yeah. who literally 
just could impersonate almost to a T anyone. Or if you're a little a little younger, also my age, you know, maybe you're thinking of Dana Carvey and his George H.W. Bush impression. And but I mean, if you do that, voters are going to say, "But you're not Trump. You're trying to snow us." So you need to do it in a way that voters are going to interpret as authentic. They're not interested in a statesman. They're not interested in an idea man. I mean, it's not that those things don't matter, but first and foremost, you've got to fight. And and part of the reason is Trump won re-election, won, won the presidency in 2016, being exactly who he is. And so Republican primary voters think this can work. They have seen it work. And it's also why for many Republicans, it's okay with them if Trump punches down and gets in the mud and doesn't act presidential because it's a signal to them that he's fighting for them. If you'd been going to uh, Lincoln Day dinners or Republican events uh, for the last 20 years, like you have and like I have, you probably would have heard over and over and over again during the Bush years, during the McCain campaign, during the Romney effort, uh, when are we going to fight back against the media? How are we going to stop the media? How are we going to stop the Clintons? You know, it's this always a sense that there were larger forces out there and that our leaders who they loved and they were going to vote for just didn't really have a plan to obliterate the people that they truly hated. All of a sudden, Donald Trump comes along and he punches the media in the face every day. He punches, uh, you know, the Clinton you know, regime in the face every day and takes that on. And and from that point forward, I'm not sure it, it mattered what he did, because just taking on those two institutions proved to the people uh, that he was trying to impress that he he heard them. He he heard their pleas for somebody to fight. So my question to you is this. In a world where he doesn't, let's just hypothetically say he doesn't run, which, by the way, I, I personally think he's running. And, and if I were in his position, I'd run, too, because it's the easiest, easiest campaign of all time, in my opinion, which we'll talk about. But, but of the people that are not Donald Trump that you interviewed and that you considered for this book, which one do you think most authentically is able to channel what's necessary to survive at this level of the Republican Party today? Well, that's a it's a tough question, but I will. I'm not going to really shrink from the question, but what I want to say is, as a political reporter, what I tried to do within Trump's shadow is prevent, present options of possible futures built around this sort of singular thread. And I've also learned, and the Trump era should, be, should have taught us this, that oftentimes what seems like a sure thing really isn't, or what seems like it absolutely can't work, ends up working. Most people uh, that do this professionally wouldn't have thought that Trump's shtick would have worked. And certainly, I don't even think Trump thought he was going to win the 2016 presidential election. I think that was pretty clear in watching his victory speech uh, the night that he was declared the president-elect in November of 2016. So let me let me present a couple of options, and there's a reason why I covered the various candidates in depth that I did. I think Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, is running one of the most intriguing campaigns for the White House. Mm -hmm. I think that his, um, I think that his connections to the establishment wing of the GOP and his tenure in the Trump administration give him credibility on both wings of the party. And I've watched him in small groups and large groups show a personal warmth and a um, 
ability to give of himself that most people haven't seen in Washington. Yet at the same time, what we did see from Mike Pompeo in Washington is a very gruff, uh, aggressive uh, politician who was willing to mix it up with reporters and other politicians when he felt it was necessary or advantageous. And so I think that he is worth taking a look at. I think somebody like Tom Cotton, the Arkansas senator, um, it would help if he could work on his personal charisma. But here is somebody who knows how to pick all of the right fights with the right adversaries when it comes to Republican politics. And he also has this unique ability that I really have only seen at this level in Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to simply be impervious to criticism. Even Donald Trump was not impervious to criticism. I mean, it drove him nuts to no end and still does when reporters or Democrats or other Republicans criticize him. Tom mm -hmm. Cotton cares about n nobody criticizing him. And he knows how to tr involve himself in news stories and events that he cares about. And often in a way that has, has Democrats completely uh, coming after him. So that's a very valuable skill. You know, Ted Cruz, I would just say, was probably the closest thing to Trump before Trump got into the race in 2016. Yeah, he, he, was, was he was the 1.0 beta version of yeah. this. Yeah. He, you know, the Texas senator it was the runner-up in 2016. Republicans have a history of going to the runner-up the next time there's an open primary. And he knows what it takes more than anybody else who might run because of how far he got. And <clears throat> he knows how to fight. His issue is can he be authentic? Can he at least, or I should say, can he convince voters that he's not putting on an act? But he knows how to do it, and he's been there before. So and, you mentioned, you mentioned and, and so those are some Cotton. to think about among the six that I go in depth on. Right, and so Pompeo, though, I mean, having been such a loyal, uh, you know, uh, staffer, you know, for Donald Trump, it strikes me as hard for him, hard to imagine where he would take on Donald Trump. Um, and candidly, um, um, I think he would be intriguing in a in a non-Trump field. Cotton and Cruz, though. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a Republican operative the other day who proffered this theory that um, even though it might be unlikely that people like that could defeat Donald Trump, that there is a fear of the world passing you by if you don't run. And so for someone like Ted Cruz, especially Cotton's younger, I think, but uh, for someone like Cruz and maybe some others, uh, you may just go ahead and make the decision mentally. Well, I've got to get into this race no matter what, whether he's in or not, uh, because the world's the world's going to pass me by of the people you spoke to. How many of them do you expect to make the race, whether whether Trump's in or, in or out? Well, I think there's a good chance that it's going to be a lot more than people think. I mean, one of the points I've tried to make within Trump's shadow, and granted, it's it's a selfish point to make because I want people to read the book and find value in the book. And I think there is a lot of value in the book. But my reporting shows that Trump has not frozen the field. I mean, it's just that simple. The activity among Republicans who want to run for president is as robust as I've ever seen it. I mean, all you have to do is plop yourself down at the airport in Des Moines or Manchester up in New Hampshire and watch the turnstile go back and forth with Republicans that say, I'm here to help for 2022. And they are helping for 2022, but that's not why they're in and out of New Hampshire and Iowa as much as they are. 
They're all preparing to run. And I, in my reporting for In Trump's Shadow and since, have uh, been told by Republicans in various orbits that Trump will have no bearing on what I do, and I will run regardless of what Trump does as long as it's something I want to do. And I believe that they're sincere about that. And I think to your point, in part, it's because, look, if Trump decides to run for a third term, it's for a second term, a third, it's a third campaign yeah. for a second term. You know, he's going to be older than Joe Biden going into this campaign that Joe Biden was going into the 2020 campaign. And I think some Republicans don't plan to run for president at that age. In fact, most of them don't plan to run for president at that age. And so if you're in your late 50s or mid 60s or late 60s, what are you waiting for? And maybe your takeaway from the Trump bid in 2016 is you never know what happens if you run. So I think what's important here is not whether or not any of anybody could beat Trump, because we've all seen the poll numbers. We know how well he's doing. And I think the poll numbers are accurate. But I think what's important is there are Republicans that have concluded they're not going to be scared out of a race because of it, because they never know what's going to happen. And you put yourself in a better position to be selected uh, as the running mate, or you put yourself in a position to be the heir apparent if Trump hits 80 and all of a sudden he's got problems. Right. Look, he looks very robust and healthy and, you know, he's Trump with all of his energy, but you never know. So for all of these reasons, I really think that you're going to see some people run. And so then the question is, did they learn the lesson of 2016, which is if you want to be the big dog, you have to attack the big dog and not dance around him because you're too worried about angering his voters. One of the things that worked for Trump so well is he attacked everybody in that race. He attacked candidates he thought could beat him and candidates that had no shot of beating him. He attacked. Oh, him. Oh, oh, we here in Kentucky remember all too well him uh, pummeling Rand Paul, <laughs> you know, on the end of the stage. And Rand right. was almost out of the race and Trump spared you know, would not spare him. Uh, now, Rand's become a loyal supporter, at least attitudinally, of, of Trump. Yeah. But, uh, but he he savagely attacked folks at one and two percent in that primary. Correct. So I, I think you'd be surprised. I mean, I think Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo in particular are two uh, veterans of the Trump administration that are looking at running regardless of what Trump does. And look, when I had Mike Pompeo on my In Trump's Shadow podcast, which is a companion to the book, I, and I asked him, I said, I, I know you're not going to tell me if you're running or not, but if Trump runs, does that mean you won't? And what he told me was that if you believe you should be president because you have something unique to offer to the country at any given time, then it shouldn't, then if it matters to you who else is running, you don't have what it takes. And I, and I think the way you interpret that is I'll do what I want because I want to do it and I'm not going to be scared out of the race by Trump. Clearly, they'll all make political calculations. Some won't run because of him. But I, I don't think that it's a fait accompli that he just clears the field and has zero competition. Yeah, it strikes me that Pence is, you know, this is the last stop on this train for him. And, and he's got to run. And uh, obviously, uh, he's it, it, if he's, he's going to do it, he's going to do it now. And by yeah. the way, I'm not saying this would work. And I just want to be clear because I, I understand politics. I'd like to think as well as anybody. But he does have a story to tell about standing up to Trump at risk of his own political career. And it would make for an interesting discussion when Trump attacked him for not overturning the election. And Pence said, I believe in the American Constitution. And if it means that, you know, nobody, no Republican in America wants to vote for me, 
I can live with that because I had what it takes to do what was right because I was willing to fight for the Constitution. It would be an interesting debate. I think we know where most Republican voters would end up, at least, you know, I think we know. But it still would be an interesting debate. And, and you know, given where Pence is in his career, I, I don't see why it does him any good to wait for some, you know, for 2028 uh, and certainly not for 2032. I want to ask you about one more potential candidate before we talk about your personal interactions with with former President Trump, which I found fascinating uh, the uh, the way you described it in the book. Uh, but that's Chris Christie. Since your book came out, uh, the former New Jersey governor has been on a something of a media blitz. Uh, he had already become a pretty heavy presence on ABC News uh, and their Sunday shows and their election programming. But now I see him everywhere. He's doing every radio show and podcast and TV show out there. He's quite clearly running for president as someone who was a Trump supporter, a loyal Trump supporter, a friend of Donald Trump who had to part ways with him over January the 6th. What is your assessment in light of your reporting and in light of what you've seen in the last few weeks of Chris Christie's chances to take on Donald Trump and, as you say, attack the big dog in a way that couldn't render success. Right. So Governor Christie clearly has learned the lesson of 2016 and not, not that he didn't attack somewhat in 2016, but, you know, he was focused on Marco Rubio in 2016, the candidate who was always in second or third place. He was never focused on Ted Cruz or, or Donald Trump, the candidates that were always in first and second place. So he seems to have figured out what it takes if you're going to be successful at all. I think Chris Christie is an interesting experiment to see what happens when a a Republican with some heft, and I say that politically and attitudinally, I mean, a two-term governor of New Jersey, former federal prosecutor, he has a resume, he's an established figure, he has run for president before, although he didn't get uh, that far in 2016 it's an interesting experiment to see what kind of following and support he can develop in doing what he's doing, which is being very candid in a way that most Republicans I talk to are only privately candid. He's being very publicly candid about Trump's post behavior in the post-election period and, and unfounded claims. I think that the election was stolen. Doesn't mean there wasn't any fraud, but there's a difference between fraud that wouldn't have amounted to changing the outcome of the election and an outright theft. And uh, Chris Christie has been willing to put a spotlight on Trump's claims and criticize them and talk about what he thinks it takes for the country and the party to move forward successfully. So he has all of those ingredients. And I think that he is clearly somebody that is going to run. You don't do what he's doing if you're not going to run. Um, I interviewed him for the Texas Tribune Festival a couple months ago, and he was even more critical of Donald Trump in our interview than he has been in other interviews, saying that the, the president, in very stark terms, let the country down and did horrible damage to the country with his behavior and his claims and um, has not minced words in his book or otherwise. So. I think he's somebody to watch and in part somebody to watch to see if he's able to have any legs with Republicans uh, as time goes on. Uh, Let's talk about your interactions with Donald Trump. You got an interview with him, spent quite a bit of time with him, it seems like, and other people in his inner circle, it it sounds like from your reporting. So you go down to Florida and uh, you have quite quite an experience uh, 
interviewing Donald Trump. Uh, how, how did you find him there? Was he relaxed? Was he chomping at the bit? Kind of give us a window into Donald Trump's attitude uh, at this moment uh, as he sort of has to sit back and wait, you know, for this next race to start. Yeah, my interview for, for with Trump for In Trump Shadow was really fascinating. You know, he's a very different person in person away from the cameras than he is in front of the cameras or or in front of a crowd at a rally. He's very cordial. He's very welcoming. I mean, it, you know, you know, it, it's not surprising that here's somebody who was a hospitality executive for most of his life. Uh, do you need anything to drink? Can I show you around? How are you feeling? How was your flight in? You know, have you seen Palm Beach? It's really blowing up here. The shopping's amazing. And then, you know, he finally gets around to, okay, so uh, what's your book about? And I'm like, well, it's about you. And, you know, his eyes light up. I mean, he knows the book's about him because he knows that's why I'm there. But his eyes light up. And, All right, shoot. And so, you know, what I tried to do with my interview with Donald Trump is different. Some was somewhat different than what I do for a living every day as a reporter. You know, as a reporter every day when I'm interviewing political figures, I want to find out what they're thinking and what they're planning to do. But a lot of times I feel it is like it is my part of my job to challenge them in a fair way. So I come up with the f- a list of fair and challenging devil's advocate like questions that are, that have nothing to do with what I might personally believe. So if you're if you're proposing as a Republican to cut taxes, I'll ask you a challenging question about how it impacts different classes of Americans or how it impacts the federal deficit, mm-hmm. even though I could make an argument to a Democrat that it's the people's money, it's not the government's money, and everybody that works hard for a living should get a tax cut no matter how much money they make, right? I just switch it up. But with with Donald Trump for In Trump Shadow, I wanted to try and get inside his head, find out why he does what he does, so I could try and tell the story of how this generational break with the Reagan era of Republican politics had unfolded, and to try and paint a picture of what 2024 could look like whether he runs or not, because even if he doesn't run, we can all bet he'll be very involved. And so I just tried to ask him questions about, you know, I asked him this one question about 2016. And I said, look, when you, when you launched your campaign, you were more hawkish on immigration than most Republicans. And you were definitely, he doesn't like this term, but I think it's a fair term, more protectionist on trade than any Republican. Right. I said, did you have an intuitive feel that this would work, that that's what voters wanted and you knew something everybody else didn't? Or given that you had been you had been you had held these positions for about 40 years and then he's like, yeah, I'd been saying this. for." I'm like, I know, I know. Did you just said wing it and decide to go go with it? And he's like, I didn't know if it would work. It was just what I believed. It wasn't very Republican, but it's just what I thought. So here Trump is telling me, rather than bragging that he knew something everybody else didn't, that he just decided to say what he thought, and lo and behold, it worked. And I thought that was a very candid moment. I also asked him what he thought his biggest impact on the party was. And he told me, I think I taught Republicans how to fight. You know, and he's like, and it's funny because he, he recalled the 2012 uh, presidential election between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, and he's like, Mitt Romney lost, but he just concedes right away. What did he do that for? You know, it's like it's and so you start to have this window into how he approaches things. Uh, And then throughout the interview, and this is where uh, you do get a little bit of your own private Trump rally. He just I would ask him questions and I never had to get around to asking him what he thinks of 
other Republicans because he just interjects what he thinks. I'd ask him a question, I don't know, about, you know, the Abraham Accords. And he'd say, you know, Liz Cheney's a psycho, total warmonger. And then I'd ask him a question, I don't know. I don't even remember what the question was. And he told, tells me Pat Toomey's a stupid person. <laughs> Mitt Romney couldn't get elected dog catcher. I will say he camp- he complained. I mean, this was a recurring theme. About once every 20 minutes or so, he complained about Mitch McConnell. <laughs> yeah. Just just out of nowhere. Over. And, like everybody else, like Liz Cheney got two complaints separately. Everybody else got one complaint. Uh, but Mitch McConnell got five complaints. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the the theory I have on on his obsession with McConnell is that McConnell won't respond, and it, it strikes me that Trump's personality type is such that the one thing he cannot abide is lack of attention, and he's used to people engaging with him, and he's used to mixing it up, and so if you ignore him, that is some almost like the greatest insult, and uh, and therefore sets him off the most. I may be wrong, but that's that's how I've imagined it. Yeah, no, look, that's <clears throat> that's certainly part of it. I, you know, I. He's he's this very interesting political figure in that, on the one hand, if you roll over for him, he has no respect for you. Right. And he knows exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to assuage him. You're trying to keep him on your side. And he knows it, and so he uses it against you. I mean, it's, you know, it's like when I was a kid, and if I was, and I mean like a kid, like 16, 17, and I, you know, I, I had a crush on a girl and the more I chased her, the more she toyed with me where, you know, whereas you have to learn this balance of showing that you care, but not rolling over and playing dead. Uh, at one point he tells me, and this was a, an outgrowth of some of his comments on McConnell in the interview. He says, you know, you know, Kevin McCarthy, like he is, he is really basically tells me he's really, um, committed to keeping the peace with me. He really wants, you know, me to be happy. And I responded to him by saying, I said, Kevin McCarthy is preoccupied with, with keeping the peace with you. And Trump just rolls his eyes and says, I know. So let me ask you about McCarthy, because I actually think this is one of the most pressing issues for the Republican Party, given that I think it's a mortal lock that Republicans are going to take the House. He is in line to be Speaker of the House, except for the for the possibility that Donald Trump decides between now and then maybe Kevin McCarthy isn't the right guy and he and he works against him. Did you get a feeling for how Trump will treat McCarthy uh, if that if the situation comes to pass that Republicans have the majority and are about to elect a speaker? So I tend to think that the way McCarthy is engaging Trump and I write about this in the, the chat in the chapter about Trump and his family, that he's not going to try and undermine McCarthy's bid for speaker. So one of the things that McCarthy did as the Republican leader in the 2020 cycle is constantly engage with Donald Trump on on house races and political strategy and messaging. And in fact, was one of the progenitors of the Teletown Hall where Trump would get on the phone in these various districts and do like a five minute you know, candidate X is great. We got to reelect or elect X candidate. Um, and so he has tried to keep Trump engaged in the same way. And his thinking is that the more he engages Trump, then the less Trump freelances and possibly freelances in a way that is detrimental to Republican prospects for winning back the House, as great as those prospects are with just a five seat majority and Biden's approval numbers in the tank. And he continues to engage with with. Trump. And so even though Trump will complain at times, I'm sure 
And even though I wouldn't be surprised if they had disagreements at times, and McCarthy is not always – I don't mean about the January 6th stuff, by the way. Like they, they, they have had disagreements about messaging and political strategy. I know that they had a deep disagreement about the president, the former president's approach to mail-in and absentee voting in 2020. Right. McCarthy was a big proponent of it, urged the president to just get on board, adopt it, and encourage Republicans to vote any way they felt comfortable. So they will disagree at times, and McCarthy will voice his opinion at times. So because of McCarthy's approach, even though he gets criticized and sometimes looks like he's trying a little bit too hard, given the way Trump makes everybody squirm, I think what that means is if Republicans win the House majority, and I agree with you, it's more likely than not, I don't see where Donald Trump feels compelled to undermine McCarthy's bid for speaker or choose another horse. And I would also say, and we've seen this in the Senate, where the former president keeps encouraging Senate Republicans to oust oust Mitch McConnell as leader, and they keep ignoring him because, one, nobody else wants the job, and two, they know he's the best equipped for the job based on who is available at the moment. It's not that they won't roll because Mitch McConnell won't serve forever and ever and ever, but there's a reason why they ignore him because this is internal conference politics and they like their leadership team and they at least like Mitch McConnell there and they like the job he's doing. I think there are a lot of Republicans that McCarthy has relationships with and look, the freedom, the house freedom caucus, which is closely aligned with Donald Trump and this new wing of, Trumpy conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, they're always going to be troublemakers. But they would be troublemakers without Trump. Hmm. I don't think at the end of the day that McCarthy is going to have too difficult a time whipping 218 votes to win the speaker's gavel unless – I mean, is there, a, is there a, an unless? There's always an unless. I mean, if they only win 219 seats – After the great expectations for how the dozens of seats they should win in a midterm cycle with a Democratic president with low approval ratings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, there are always caveats, but they win a healthy number of seats and you'll have a group of maybe up to a dozen and everybody will be like, can you believe it? And he didn't get every vote, but he'll still be the speaker. The question is, because I think McCarthy is a great uh, political tactician with a lot of political sense. And there's a reason why he's the leader. He's very good at establishing relationships across the conference. And he's a likable guy. and He's a good fundraiser. Once you are the speaker of a House majority with Joe Biden in the White House, you are still ultimately going to have to compromise either with a Senate where the majority party, which I think will probably be the Republican Party, is not going to have 60 votes. Or And with a Democratic president, I mean, if for no other reason, to keep the, the lights on, to fund the government, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to want to fund the military. And as we learned from the Boehner speakership after the 2010 elections, he had a really hard time keeping people together for these simple things, let alone getting people to agree to incremental conservative reforms when you just can't run roughshod over the government, Democrats are having the same problem, by the way. We've seen this with you know, the infrastructure bill where House centrists and House liberals in the Democratic caucus couldn't come together. And now on both sides of Capitol Hill, Democrats cannot come together over the president's big social spending bill, sometimes referred to as the Build Back Better bill. It's a reconciliation package that is not subject to a filibuster. So we've seen how hard it is when you have full control 
it's that much harder when you don't have full control and yet you, you have members in your conference that think you're supposed to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and you have voters who listen to them. That is going to be McCarthy's challenge. And my, my assumption is he'll be able to, to mollify most of the conference and most Republican voters nationally, frankly, by just uh, launching massive numbers of investigations of the Biden administration. You're more optimistic than I am in terms of what it, whether or not you're capable of mollifying voters. I think that, that that will make voters happy. And if you didn't do it, you'd, especially in, you know, in light of Donald Trump's impeachment and where the base is, you'd have a lot of angry Republicans. And so that's the easiest thing to do. But you're still going to have to break bread with Joe Biden and compromise with him. I uh, I think that they'll be given some latitude to do that as long as they're holding Biden accountable. And the thing about Biden's record so far is that there's plenty on which he needs to be held accountable. That would be the average Republican view, you know, whether it's Afghanistan or uh, inflation or you know anything else. I think the Republicans will have such a menu of things uh, to discuss that it may be that that they'll be given some latitude. You know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. <laughs> Look, I think Joe Biden is looking forward to the day that he has to deal with a majority Republican Congress because <laughs> dealing with a majority Democratic Congress has been a nightmare. And at least right. he could pay homage to the campaign he ran in 2020, which is that I'm gonna, we're going to have a return to normalcy and, yeah, I'm deal, and I'm deal, we're going to reduce yeah. the extremism in Washington. And when he has to compromise with Republicans, he can turn to Democrats on the Hill and say, well, what do you want me to do? You guys don't have the votes. Yeah, there, there were a lot of people who were positing before the Georgia runoffs that it would be better if uh, Republicans had won those seats to give Biden the cover he needed to be the moderate deal maker he promised to be. And that didn't happen. And now we see the mess he's in. Let me let me um, ask you a couple more questions about Donald Trump. <clears throat> you interviewed him. Um, he obviously uh, seemed like he enjoyed the conversation based on your reporting. Has he followed up with you since the book has come out? And uh, are you keeping in touch with him uh, for other reporting? Well, I'm, I'm keeping in touch with members of his team for other reporting. I have not heard positive or negative from Donald Trump, which I'm sort of disappointed by because if he liked the book, it would generate a certain number of sales. And if he <laughs> hated the book, it would generate a certain number of sales. So you know, by hitting this sweet spot, apparently, where I think I offer a good critical assessment of aspects of the Trump era and Trump the politician, but also focus, as you noted, on a forward-looking book about what all of this has meant to the future of the Republican Party. Uh, I'm apparently not hostile enough, nor praiseworthy enough, uh, nor nor. Uh, nor friendly enough to have elicited a comeback from Trump, which is a journalist is what you want. But, you know, when you're looking at book sales and the book's doing right. great and I'm, I'm happy, but, you know, you realize these things can go viral if you make the right person happy or the wrong person angry. Uh, I was uh, fascinated by something Jonathan Carl in his book uh, was able to to find out. And that was about Trump threatening to leave the Republican Party <clears throat> and was curious to know in your conversation with him did you sense from him any great continued attraction to being a Republican? I mean, Carl's reporting was that he threatened to literally leave the party. Uh, and a lot of people think about this, you know, from time to time. What was your sense of him on his his own personal view of his affiliation with the party, given that he wasn't a Republican for a chunk of his life? Well, I, look, my my sense and, you know, he told me that the, the, the idea that he would he volunteered, if I remember this correctly, that the idea that he would leave the Republican Party was preposterous and he had no plans to do it and wouldn't want to do it. And in some 
uh, portions of our interview talked very affectionately about the Republican Party and how he made it bigger and better and stronger and all of that. But, you know, I asked him, I report on this anecdote, uh, you know, in, in, in Trump's shadow at the beginning, sometime in the beginning of the 2020 election cycle, the top staff, of the national Republican senatorial committee, which is the Senate GOP campaign arm, the official committee of Senate Republicans for their political efforts. They decided to schedule a meeting with top, the top officials of the Trump campaign. So they could all just talk about messaging and strategy and, you know, where are you going to be and what are you doing? And let's all be on the same page. Let's make sure we know each other so we can help each other because we'll sink or swim together. Right. I mean, it's standard politics. And so they, they head over across the Potomac river to the Trump campaign headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, uh, from their Capitol Hill offices and, and sit down. And at some point, you know, in the interview, in the interview, in the, in the meeting, uh, Brad Parscale, who was campaign manager at the time, tells uh, the NRS, the officials from the NRSC, look, it's, this is really important. You cannot use Trump's image or likeness without our permission. And they were kind of like, what, what, what are you talking about? You know, he's the president of the United States. He's the leader of the party. We're not going to write some fundraising email script and sign his name. I mean, we definitely, you know, would get approval for anything we'd say right. in his name. But what? And they went on and on about this. And then after Trump left the White House, he issued a new directive to the NRSC and the, Na the National Republican Congressional Committee, the House campaign arm, said, you need my permission to use my likeness and my image and likeness. And of course, they, they ignored him in 2020 and they're ignoring him now. Hmm. But I asked Trump, why do you care? And I said, you're the president, the former president, and you're the leader, and you're a public figure. He's like, because I don't like all Republicans, and I don't think they do a good job. <laughs> and so I don't want them all using my image. And so what I learned from that, and what it reminded me of is, you know, so many Republican voters over the last 10, 15 years in particular have developed such a dour, negative opinion of the of the party that they affiliate with right i mean that's why the surest way to success in a republican primary uh pre-trump in particular but still in a way is to say that you're against the republican establishment all those leaders they're all e they're all evil right that's why reporters love to ask you know republican candidates for office well will you vote for mccarthy for speaker would you support mcconnell for leader Right. Because either, you know, either way it's news. Oh, they're in with the establishment or look, they're not in with, the, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. And Trump shares their contempt. He channels their contempt. He's like, I'm just like you. This party's a piece of crap. Yeah. It's horrible. It's why Trump during he was, he is the establishment. He was elected president of the United States. I'm sorry. That makes you the establishment. And yet throughout <laughs> his presidency, he was like a barstool commentator. He was like, can you believe how horrible this party is? Can you believe how awful this government is? What a piece. Yeah, You're he, running he, the government, sir. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a federal democracy and a, a, a republic. And, you know, we have Congress and we have the courts. And, you know, you can't just say anything like you're the CEO. But, like, why does he do it? Well, partly because that's just who he is. But why do Republican voters love it? Because they're like, exactly. He knows how bad it is. He's with me. So – does he want to leave the party? I think he knows ultimately that he's stronger in the party because, look, if he actually left the party, Republicans, I mean, it would cause the Republicans an initial problem in the most immediate election and maybe the next election. 
And it might actually be very detrimental and damaging for several years for the party. But nobody would have to kowtow to him anymore. And I think, he, I think what he does is he likes to let it linger out there. Yeah. Because it keeps everybody uh, scurrying down to Mar-a-Lago to pay homage to the king. Now, do, I, I think Jonathan Carl's a great reporter, by the way. And I have no doubt, or at least is very logical to me, that in the immediate aftermath of him leaving the White House, he was threatening all sorts of things. Because I think he really does believe the election was stolen. I think he's convinced himself. Yeah. And, you know, when I interviewed him, I said, wait a minute. I said, do you think that the results of the 2020 election could be undone? He's like, yeah. He's like, when's your book coming out? I'm like, October. It's like, I mean, if I were you, I'd hurry up. And he was like, <laughs> he was kind of doing the Trump jokester thing there. But right. he looked at me point blank. He's like, yeah. Like, he thinks it could be undone. And people tell him this. And remember, in over the summer, we went through a period of reporting. And, of course, I couldn't really do much. I had to hold things. It's, you know, I wanted to be in the book, but we had this flurry of reporting from all over the place with Trump thinks, you know, he could be, you know, people are telling Trump he could be president by sometime in August and the QAnon folks were moving around dates and it was all like fun and games. But Trump really believes this, that somehow they're going to find, you know, the secret server in Hillary Clinton's basement again. And it's going to have proof that he really got 125 million votes. And, you know, Joe Biden got three votes in, in 50 states. So I. That was the very interesting thing about our conversation. He did not seem to me to be somebody who was saying things for effect. You know, he went off the record a couple of times, but never to say, look, like I kind of, but you have to understand. No, it was none of that. Let me ask you, uh, as we wrap up here, David, <clears throat> about the media business. You've been a uh, reporter for a number of years now. You've also done a lot of work on television do a lot of radio, you do podcast work. Um, and for this book, you even did the audio version, which is how I consumed it and listened to it. Was wanted to ask you about the media business in general. First of all, how did you find the process of reading your own book? Was that a fun thing for you or not? And then the second question is, uh, of all the things you're doing with writing daily stories, and now you've got a book and the other content you're producing, which of it actually is most fulfilling to you? Which of it appeals to you the most uh, professionally? Really good question. Well, let me just say first, you know, writing a book I learned is the hardest thing I could ever imagine doing as a writer. So the process of reporting and writing the book was extremely cumbersome and scary and difficult and often didn't feel fun at all, but it felt very fulfilling. And for that reason, I would do it again because the body of work that you end up with is so personal um, and so detailed. And it's, it's the kind of thing you can almost never do in a daily story. Uh, political columnists may have a different feel about this because every day it's much more of a their personal analysis and personal voice. But I was able to tell the story that I saw through deep reporting and tell it the way I wanted to tell it. And so I felt very fulfilled by that. Recording the audiobook, I have to say, was one of the was just very, very uh, grueling. And it was at times a grind. You have a director in your ear and a sound technician in the next room also in your ear. The microphones are extremely sensitive to the point where I, I had a pillow over my stomach for most of the, the, the 25, 30 hours it took me to record because it would pick up like my stomach rallying because I was hungry. Wow. And I would – some of the sentences, you're hearing me say them once. I mean there were some sentences where I did 10 or 15 takes. 
either I missed a word, I transposed a word, I lisped, I mean, something or other. So it was a, it was a very eye-opening process. And, and do they, the do they stop you in the, great, they stop you in the moment? Do they stop you in the moment or do they let you finish up the page and then you have to go back and redo the both. whole thing? Sometimes both. Like, wow. like sometimes they'd stop me right in the moment. Other times they'd say, okay, let's go back. And so it was a very technical and demanding process, but I'm really glad I did it. Um, then, you know, they told me there was a part where I said, you know, how much inflection can I put into Trump's quotes? Because, you know, I'm not an impressionist, but he's got this kind of way about him. And so they're right. like, well, look, don't do an impression, but you can add some inflection. So I don't know if people are going to see this, right? But the, the way I got myself in the right frame of mind to do it, and this was mostly in the first chapter and the ninth chapter, is every time I was reading a Trump quote, I'd have my hands doing like kind of he does at a rally where he's kind of holding <laughs> them off to the side and going back and forth with them. So and it was you fun. You were getting into character. You were getting right. You're like you were in character. I was kind of in character, and I've done this in book talks where, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to explain, you know, what it was like to talk to him, and you know, it'll be like Pat Doomey, he's a stupid person, and you know, Larry Hogan, have you looked at him? I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of. I mean, he says these things that are really mean and impolitic and beneath a former pre leader of the free world, but it it is funny sometimes. And I and it and it is interesting and different. And in some ways, his transparency is fun to cover. Now, the implications for his behavior can sometimes be extremely serious, and I try not to forget that. They're serious to the people who support him, and serious to the people that don't support him. But but sometimes in the moment, you're just dealing with this like something. It's like a bizarre political figure. It's like something out of a movie, right? I mean, I remember watching the movie like 20, 30 years ago, Bullworth with with Warren Beatty, right? Right, which is about a politician who decides to just start saying whatever the, the heck he rails. thinks, yeah. <laughs> politically incorrect things. And I'm watching this movie at the time, going, okay, this is kind of stupid because it just couldn't happen. And I know you're, and, and and you know that's, but that that's who he is. He's Bullworth. All right, David Drucker, thanks for being with us. I want to wrap this podcast with our famous lightning round. So these are one answer or short answer questions for you, and uh, we'll start the clock. You grew up on the West Coast, and you've spent a lot of life on the East Coast. Which coast is best? I'm an East Coast guy, as it turns out. Nothing bad to say about the West Coast, but I just have really taken to the East Coast. Although the summer weather is horrible. You have, obviously, as we discussed, interviewed Donald Trump. Uh, if you could interview any president in history other than Donald Trump, who would it be and why? Living or dead? Living or dead. Well, it's a cross between uh, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln just because they were so monumental. You know, George Washington sort of set the template for what American presidents and presidencies were supposed to look like. And it wasn't a bad template at that. And Abraham Lincoln obviously guided the country through its greatest ever crisis. And I, I just, if I get to choose, it's got to be one of them. All right. Uh, Donald Trump recently made a joke about Mitch McConnell and called him the old crow, which Mitch McConnell says is a great compliment because that's the name of the bourbon that Henry Clay loved. Does David Drucker have a favorite bourbon? My favorite bourbon lately is Jefferson's Reserve. Oh, yeah. It started during the pandemic, and I, I mean, I think I drink as much Jefferson's Reserve on a weekly basis as I drink water, which is <laughs> maybe not so good, but I really enjoy it. You'd fit right in down here. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Greatest sports coach of all time, not named John Wooden. 
Oh man, you kill me. You kill me. <laughs> oh, um, I, did my, I did my UCLA homework on you. Oh, you really did. <laughs> Tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the back burner. I'm gonna do the next two, and then we'll let you finish up with it. Right. What is your What is your favorite movie? Well, my favorite movie over time is When Harry Met Sally, just because of the market left on me when I was still single, and that movie came out. And I had never seen people honestly discuss relationships between men and women on screen the way the characters written by Nora Ephron did in When Harry Met Sally. What book is on your nightstand right now that you're getting through? Um, Hamilton by Ron Chernow. All right. I just finished his uh, book on Grant, which was a uh, great amazing. book. Terrific. I listened to the audio version of that, which was which is also well done. Uh, any upcoming travel plans? Are you going somewhere cool? So I'm in New York for Thanksgiving. I am headed to Michigan for a book swing, and I'm excited I get to finally get to Grand Rapids because I'm such a campaign nerd. I just like to get to different communities that I haven't been to. Um, and then I have to see my in-laws in Texas, which love Texas, but you know I go all the time. Not a big deal anymore. But I'll be in Dallas and Fort Worth and a little bit of Austin. Hmm. Um, I, I am planning on getting back on the trail next year in a big way, which is going to mean a lot of Midwest travel. Um, and I'm hoping to get out West for some interesting races. And finally, we'll come back to it. You got to have a non-wooden coach, somebody. Well, look there. I mean, the, the greatest coach of all time when I'm not allowed to choose the man with 10 national championships, including <laughs> seven in a row for the school that I'm a diehard and a graduate of, yeah. um, is, is a, is really difficult. Um, and so then I'm just kind of searching here for, for, for another coach. Um, hmm. There, I mean, it could be a football coach, could be a baseball coach, could be uh, your high school track coach. You play sports in high school? Um, I did play sports in high school. Ah, I remembered his name. I didn't even have to think. So I'm going to go with Al Skates, who <laughs> okay. won more than a dozen national championships as coach of the UCLA men's volleyball team. Man, you are brand loyal. David Drucker, the author of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. The book is out now. You can buy it wherever you get your books. You can download the audio version, with, which David Drucker himself recorded. You can listen to the accompanying podcast. Again, it's called In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David, you were a great guest. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Flyover Country Podcast with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 